Hey friends, hope you're well. Hope you've had a great week. As always, lovely to have you here with me today. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, Plant Proof Podcast. Each week, I get to sit down with super, super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, and much more to have conversations that can help all of us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. It's not uncommon for these conversations to challenge some of our internal beliefs, my own included. And something that I have learned over the years is to be open to this, to be open to the idea that it's okay to unlearn. Something else I've learned along the way is to ditch the feeling of guilt. I used to learn new things and then feel guilty for how I previously navigated through my life and and the previous decisions that I would make. But that's not healthy. We should never be made to feel guilty if we are genuinely acting as good people without intention to harm. And really, when you think about it, we can only control the present and the future. This week, I have a really, really cool episode for you guys. Have you ever thought about riding a bike without brakes at speeds close to 100 kilometers an hour down steep descents? Or Patrick Seabase, Red Bull cyclist, sure has. But Patrick isn't your typical cyclist. Vegetarian for 17 years and now plant-based, Patrick uses riding to create. His work is much more than pedaling and smashing records. A truly very, very interesting guy who rather admirably does things his own way, on his own terms, and provides a great deal of inspiration along the way. Before we dive into the episode, I have had a few questions this week about iron on a plant-based diet. So thought I'd quickly summarize things. Firstly, there are two types of iron, heme iron and non-heme iron. Meat and animal products typically contain large amounts of heme iron, but they do contain some non-heme iron as well, while plant-based foods only contain non-heme iron. Iron deficiency is the most prevalent nutrient deficiency globally, affecting people from all walks of lives, whether omnivorous, pescatarian, vegetarian, or vegan. It does tend to affect females of childbearing age, kids, and anyone that has lost a lot of blood more so than others. Healthy men tend to have less issues because a lot of the iron in the body is recycled, and providing they are topping up with tiny amounts that they've lost each day and providing that they don't have any form of blood loss, then they really don't tend to run into issues. When it comes to vegans versus omnivores, vegans do tend to have lower iron stores. However, generally have completely fine iron blood serum levels. 
There is no data suggesting that high iron stores is actually healthy. And we do know that iron toxicity from large amounts of heme iron in particular is associated with cardiovascular disease, among other things. It's true that heme iron is more readily absorbed. However, our bodies have a much better ability to downregulate non-heme iron absorption compared to heme iron. Simply put, if we eat too much heme iron, we have a poor ability to slow down absorption and it can quickly lead to toxic levels. On a plant-based diet, there are certainly ways to maximize iron levels if you are having difficulties with your iron blood serum levels. Firstly, eat lots of iron-rich plant-based foods like leafy greens, legumes, apricots, chia seeds, hemp seeds, spirulina, blackstrap molasses, there's loads out there. And then to enhance absorption, where you can cook with onion and garlic. Both have been shown to significantly increase iron and zinc absorption from foods eaten at the same meal. Vitamin C rich foods like lime or lemon juice and even strawberries, they'll also improve absorption. Also, a, a good idea to restrict coffee, tea, or red wine from your iron-rich meals as they reduce iron absorption. And if none of that works, that's when you work with your nutritionist or healthcare practitioner and look at an iron supplement, which I often do recommend for people. However, when their levels return to normal, I do like them to see if they can tweak their diet to get enough iron absorption from whole foods. If you have no issues with your iron levels, then you do not need to think about any of this. Just disregard it and just eat a diverse and abundant plant-based diet full of cooked and some raw foods. Okay, friends, iron lesson done. I hope that was somewhat helpful. Time to hear from Patrick Seabase. See you on the other side. All right, Patrick Seabase, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Hello, Simon. Thanks for inviting me. Mate, it's awesome to be able to connect here in, in New York. We were just talking about the weather and it has been a little bit bipolar, hasn't it? It is. That's New York, I guess. It's nice and sunny today, though. Which I really like. I prefer the sun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who doesn't, right? Well, I don't know. There might be people who enjoy the rain. They a can, rare amount, I guess. They can have that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take the sun. Yeah. Now, I heard about you from Vlad and mm-hmm. Organic Grill. Yeah. They do pretty delicious food down there. Too delicious. <laughs> so tell me now, before we sort of get into your story, what, what brought you to New York and how long have you been living here? I actually live in Switzerland. Oh, you live in Switzerland? Yeah. So you're, okay. So I misheard. I'm so here you- in a transition. So wow. the main reason I'm here is, yeah, my girlfriend lives here, but- the acupuncture guy who treats me lives here. Okay. And had an injury two years ago, tore my hamstring. And of course, I wouldn't stop riding. And it got worse and worse and worse. And my hip shifted and it became some sort of a disaster where I wouldn't know if my body is straight or torched, you know, tilted. And after spending like more than 20 grand, I ended up here. In this two-year period of spending money, having several treatments, and there's one guy 
called Ted. Is Shout he, out to Ted. Is he famous or how'd you find this guy? Um, well, my girlfriend goes and all the Broadway dancers, he has 35 years of experience. And he's just kind of, you know, there's some practitioners who have the sixth sense. There's some. He's one of those. That's true. That's true. And I mean, I've, I've been to so many different physiotherapists, osteopaths. There's like this Subway sandwich, McDonald's kind of guys who just treat the patient like they would treat a meal. And there's those guys who are totally living in the now. They absorb energy and they actually feel. And they, they, and they have the knowledge. Dig a bit deeper. Absolutely. The sixth sense. <laughs> He's one of those guys. So you're getting good results with him? Absolutely. Within five hours, I've been having huge progression. So that's, let's say that's one of the core aspects why I'm in New York. Yeah. And you went this morning, right? Yeah. And I, I'm a bit beat up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like what he does is basically destroying to create. Yeah. Ted, take me through a session. What happens when you walk in there? So, I mean, the most interesting, interesting session was the first one. I was, I mean, we had a couple of chats on WhatsApp before that and I explained in my situation and I was laying on that got rid of my clothes, was on that table, head up, looking at the ceiling in my underwear. And he, within like 10 seconds, he was like, I know where your problem is. It's not your hamstring, of course. It's not your gluteus. It's your external obliques. It's like, that's interesting. So it's not the psoas muscle. It is the obliques that keeps me from tilting backwards because it's so tense and it's the shoulder as well. So like it, imagine it to be a diagonal chain yeah, yeah. that pulls like a me. Sling. Yes, a sling. So he kept working on that and he discovered loads of other things that aren't aligned and he's basically peeling me like an onion. Mm. That's, That's good, he, man. Yeah. Good, and man. I'm really excited about that. I know you got your eyes set on doing some cool things back on the bike. So yes. And no doubt. I need, I need to be. Need to, we need you. Need yes. You. Yes. Yes. So how, how do you usually spend your days in, in New York? So outside of acupuncture, what do you get up to? And, and for someone who's listening that may not have mm -hmm. been to Manhattan, how mm -hmm. would you describe it? I'm very honest. I'm a very honest person. And I'm giving you my <laughs> honest opinion. So. The great thing about New York, it's the diversity of cultures, the pulse of time, and it sort of is the reference point for the Western civilization, so to speak. And I look at it more of a huge hurricane, a tornado that's constantly swirling and doesn't move, but it's in this bubble. And to me, it's sort of a, it can be a stressor. To me, it is a bit because I prefer the calm, but I love having access to big cities. Yeah, well, I mean, you're from, are you from Bern? I'm from Switzerland, Bern, Bern, which is, I mean, when you step out of the train, I used to train a lot. I don't even have a driver's license. I ride my bike, mm. use the train and the plane way too much. So I'm not a good example, but I don't drive. And... When I step out of the train in Bern from all the traveling, and I'm traveling about six months a year, especially coming back from New York, from such a busy, a stressor city, I call it. Uh, I step out of the train in Bern and I get hit KO in a good way, which basically means 
it grounds me and it's so calm. It's perfect to digest everything that happened throughout your travels. And New York is, it's, it's too much going on. It can be, it can be tough sometimes to sort of quieten your mind when there's, there's so much going on. Yes. So this is a real, it's a real melting pot here. It is. You, I mean, a huge amount of possibilities for sure. If you, it's all at your disposal. If you're an artist and you're looking for opportunities at galleries or whatsoever, you'll find it. There's great open-minded people. There's, there's a huge scene for homosexual people. I like that. It's so good. But it's huge. And there's so many people. And when you look on the side, there's buildings everywhere. And you can see the sky, like, framed in between. I guess for like a couple of days, it's mm. perfect, but no way I'm going to. I'm with you. I like, to, yeah. I like to get in and then get out. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's the beauty of it. Not to live here and enjoy it whilst we're here. Absolutely. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And tell me, you're talking about trains there in Switzerland. Yeah. So my my girlfriend is half Swiss. Her mum mm-hmm. is from Switzerland. And I've been there a few times. I've been to Zurich. Yeah. And Geneva. Mm-hmm. You miss Bern. Yeah, I miss Bern, but I did hear a lot about Bern because oh, yeah. her her grandmother used to go to Bern a lot on the train. Mm-hmm. Anyway, one thing that my girlfriend always tells me is the Swiss are very, very proud about things running on time. You're exactly right. Now, mm-hmm. is, is, that, is that true, that the trains are never late there? They literally, mm. trains run to the second almost. 90% yes. And the problem is if the 10% appear to be the case, we get upset. You know, I've heard this. <laughs> yeah, everything is on time. People take their routine seriously, um, the appointments. I mean, it's, it's part of an unwritten rule. Mm. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that. Uh, I heard a story from a friend. And he was saying he was like in the middle of nowhere in Switzerland, mm. standing at the, I think he was standing at a bus stop. And it was the, say, let's say the bus was meant to be there at 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. It was like just a tick over, like 3.01. And just out of nowhere, out of a speaker, mm. someone started talking to him, just going, just, it's okay, don't get anxious, it's on its way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was yeah. just laughing because he's lived in Australia as well, that, you know, we're so used to things running late and, whatnot and the swiss just are they're just so on time yeah i think it's part of our culture um we tend to do things very precise i mean i'm sure you heard about switzerland and its handcraftsmanship um not only it's not always money related when we speak about switzerland but it's the product and how they achieve being precise over years, the tradition and everything, it's, I think Switzerland has a huge kudos to the outside world because of being precise and clean and neutral. And it's actually true. It is. It's a small bubble as well. It's like a microcosm of, it can appear very conservative, but it's very precise and people tend to be on time. And I like that. So, of course, if you go to Ethiopia, which I've been, or Eritrea, or wherever where the time 
matters differently. You need to be a little bit more patient. Yes. Uh, We always say TIA, this is Africa. And sort of have to just play by you. Accept it. Yeah, accept it. I mean, it's like being stuck in a traffic jam. You could either get super angry and, you know, on calm and stress yourself. And there's any way, no way you can improve your situation. I mean, like progress within the traffic. So you just, you should just take mm-hmm. it easy. Yeah, that's we've, the only we've all way. done that. And you, you just grow to learn and you can yeah. almost catch yourself now. I know I can. Like yeah. if you start to, yeah. your blood starts to boil a bit and then you just realize like, this is mm-hmm. not, this is not serving me. And I, I learned that over time, you know, I'm, we're all a summary of experiences and memories and, the sad thing is that we tend to forget what we know, right? And I'm a good example. I'm very good at giving advices, but, um, you know, pull them off myself sometimes. Hard. But the older I get, I, I can pull it off more and more. And I really like that. So um, in those situations, like being Swiss and on time and, you know, be brought up with, that, or with this kind of scenario or life ethic, I can now chill out and be, let's say, maybe tolerant or accepted or just knowing that I won't improve my own situation right now if I get stressed out. So, yeah, Manhattan is much more stressful and not always on time. You've got a, a very interesting story and you're, you're well known for, for riding a bike, a certain type of bike, which <coughs> I'll let you explain mm-hmm. through you know, grueling climbs, and I've, I've had a, a look at a few of the videos online, mm-hmm. down steep descents without breaks. Mm-hmm. Before we, we sort of jump into your story, at a high level, give give me a brief overview of what this type of bike riding is all about. And then as we go through mm-hmm. your story, we can dive deeper into how you discovered this passion and the journey that you've had. Well, it's quite superficial to begin with. Um, I saw the bike and it appeared beautiful to me. It's so simple. And I wasn't really a bike rider. I rode mountain bikes. I always had one, but I I never, I mean, I discovered it when I was 20, 21, 21 actually. And I wasn't into performance or exercising whatsoever, but I saw this bike and I was struck by its simplicity and the purity of the bike itself because it has no brakes. There's only one gear. And that makes it very simple. I never wrote one, but I did some research and I had a couple of friends in San Francisco row one. And I was like, if you guys ride a bike, that must be something special because those were ex-pro skaters or pro skaters or just not your typical person who would go on a three-hour ride at the weekends. Yeah, so you thought there must be something more to this. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I built one in Bern a few weeks after, and I never put a brake on. And that was, yeah, maybe 14, 14 years ago. Never put a brake on. And I remember going on my first spin, and I knew from a fact that I would always have to pedal because it's a fixed gear. There's one gear that's attached, basically, the rear cog, the, the rear chain ring, it's called cog, 
is attached to the hop fix. So as soon as the wheel spins, the pedals turn. You could ride backwards, basically. So there is literally no brake on this. There's bike. no coasting and no brake. No the, freewheel. So not those bikes where if you, no. if you pedal backwards, it breaks? No, no co- that, that's called a coaster brake, and there's none of it. It's more of a complicated version of it. Oh, wow. You could ride backwards in circles. I can even do it. I'm really bad at doing acrobatics or stuff, but I could even ride backwards. And I mean, that's crazy going that's like really I've fun. seen now that I've seen some of the footage of you mm-hmm. going down these steep mm-hmm. descents. I was thinking, okay, there's no, there's no brakes on the, on the handlebars. No, there's none. It's there's pure. None. It's think of it. It's like, uh, like a washing machine. You and you, you can only turn it off by muscular activity basically you have to push down and pull up and hold it in order to make the wheel stop so the after effect will be that you slide because you make the wheel stop and at a certain amount of speed you slide longer you skid longer and the more pressure you put on the saddle or the the rear part of the bike the more weight you have so so it's quite extreme in, in, it is. in how you're controlling the bike. Absolutely. And that's why I love it. It's great. Imagine you're so connected with the bike. It's like almost walking barefoot. It's like the purest form of transportation, in my opinion, because you're totally connected with it. You're strapped to this sort of rocket. And first, if you if you approach a mountain pass, you ride up it for one hour or two hours, depending on the length, and then you have to go down. So you have two paradox situations. You have one gear and you climb it with the, we call it cadence. So um, those are the rounds per minute you push. And that one's pretty low on the uphill because the, beer, the gear is I mean, low. that must be tough on the, yeah. on the quads, must be burning. Yes, yes, it is. It, it is. You get used to everything if you... If you have continu- if continuity is involved in your life and you keep doing it, that's the good thing about it. So it never gets easier. You just go faster, I guess. Um, so if you're, when you're done, when you rode like two hours uphill, you reach the top and then you do the opposite. You go totally <laughs> in a different kind of way of cycling. You spin a lot when you go down because again, you're, pedals turn when the wheel turns and the higher the speed the more rounds per minute you do so you're trying to slow it down at at certain stages or are you going full chain i mean it it, i developed some sort of a anticipation skill i can i can say it now because i mean i don't want to sound like pretentious or arrogant but i think no but i mean you talk about being connected to the bike yeah obviously the more the more hours and time you're on it feels so comfortable i could i mean the last time I, I went really fast, I had 97K <laughs> without brakes with a huge tailwind on a mountain pass in Switzerland called Simplon, my favorite training pass in Switzerland. Do you ever feel out of control? Like at that speed, do you ever think? Okay. Once, once I felt out of control. So imagine you're spinning about, two, you can reach up 200 rounds per minute, which is, you look like a weird dancer on the bike. But you still have to control it. You have to maintain control. And once I was descending on on a climb that calls that's called um, Tourmalet, le Tourmalet in France. It's in the Pyrenees. 
Was this the... the that 1910, that, yeah, that it was a long ride. Long, it was yeah. like a 12-hour ride. I want to go into that. Long. Yes, yes. But in a midsection of the whole ride, I encountered a woman, that was, an older woman, an old lady crossing the street, and I was blasting around the corner with 60 or 70. And I remember that moment, the adrenaline kind of, yeah, it has been risen quite high and I was able to um, handle the situation, but it was close to, yeah. I mean, if disaster. you come off your bike, that, that, that is, that's car speed, what mm-hmm. you're doing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it can be lethal, but I never had a crash on the track bike, never. So okay. I'm quite confident, yeah, touch wood, um, but it's still, uh, it's always, your mind is somewhere else, but still there. It sounds scary if I talk like this because people might think, what? He's like, he's like somewhere else. He's not like focused. Yeah, I'm totally focused. A hundred thousand percent so focused that I don't realize it anymore. It's like I don't even feel if it's hot or warm. It's so locked in. Yeah, it's like a simultaneous translator. He would tell you the same thing. He's so busy with with the skill set he improved over the years, he doesn't need to think about what he's doing. He knows it, but he's so connected with the situation that he wouldn't have any access to his emotional or physical feelings. He would just be there and do it. It's incredible how you can do that, almost shut off mm-hmm. s- certain parts to, to put more of your energy and focus into one area yes. where, where it's needed. But you, I'm sure you... You had the same experience in your life when you are, when you reach a level where you're comfortable, whether it's training or whatever, something that needed a certain amount of uh, training or whatever to get to that level. You just do it without thinking about it. You know, like oh, tell me, I'm telling, I'm telling you to put this glass into the cupboard. You're just doing it. Yeah, you don't think about this. You don't think about how I'm going to pick it up. I mean, that's the most simple example, but it's the same with everything. Once you reach a level, you just do it. You can go harder if the situation demands it. That's a great thing. Then you reach the zone, that kind of zone. You know? So let's, let's come back to the racing. You spoke about burn. Mm-hmm. Is that where you were born? Is that where you Yes, born and raised, still well-rooted in Bern. Describe Bern. It's a tiny town, but it is the capital of Switzerland. Most people think it's Zurich. It is actually Bern. Is everyone, from, does everyone from Bern clarify that? Well, <laughs> I guess, I guess <laughs> they proud. have to because yeah. we feel like, okay, everyone thinks it's Zurich, but it's yeah. actually Bern. It's a small town. It's super calm. There's a river, one of the fastest rivers in Europe you can swim in super fast that's cool it's full of people and you could do like a loop around burn burn is shaped like a horseshoe so goes the river along it it's beautiful there's loads of little parks i mean it's you you wouldn't be able to compare it with another big city it isn't a big city it's super traditional there's loads of sandstone buildings there's a bear pit which burn is famous for it's also in the uh, if you see communication ads and everything, it's always a bear, a bear involved. And as a as a as a kid growing up there, what were 
your sort of interests and hobbies at that point in your life? Um, my dad, he was an air marshal and chief of police. He was also in special forces, but he liked metal. He loved metal music. What and, are we talking? What, what, um, what bands? He, so I grew up listening to early Sepultura, like Arise Beneath the Remains, um, Napalm Death, also Nirvana, the first Bleach, I remember when you put that on vinyl, I was amazed. Alice in Chains, Soundgarden was his favorite band, so it is, so it's mine. We had this sort of um, more poppier metal, kind of the grunge thing, and the real thing like Morbid Angel mm. or Motorhead was one of his, his favorite things, Black Sabbath. And I remember he was telling me stories about Black Sabbath when he slept in a stair in a hallway just to get to a concert or a ticket. Um, so music was a huge thing and discipline. My dad, you know, he was a person to, who would make me go run when I was about eight every Sunday for five kilometers, even if, when I was sick, I did it. And he would put like 10 bucks on my account. Which was, I would eventually get when I was 18. So that was more about building discipline rather than the yeah. fitness aspect? Yeah. He wanted, maybe he, he wanted me to, to become uh, some sort of a machine with a cultural background, you know, like the perfect hybrid in his eyes. He, he wanted to, to transform me somehow. At least, I mean, reflecting on it, I would get that. We never spoke about it clearly. So but, how did you, did you like doing the running? How did you feel? I mean, I like, I, it was always like I had to beat him, which I couldn't at that point. Later on, I would, when I was about 13, 14, I was able to, you know, run at a high heart rate, go full gas. He liked it though. He was, of course, not like the angry dad on the sideline of the football field shouting at his kids, yeah, yeah. you know, not that kind of guy. He was pleasant, but he... He wanted me to, to be in shape and also have a cultural background, having great access to good music. I mean, he thought it was good music and I, so did I, and I still love it. I'm so grateful for this, but that shaped me so much, discovering all that music, um, having a neighbor who was 10 years older back then, walking around with black metal t-shirt and I was about 11 and he made me a copy of a band called Immortal, Sound of Northern Darkness, I remember. And I was fascinated by black metal and straight edge, the hardcore. So I grew up with this whole thing in this tiny city called Bern, where there was literally no access to this. I picked it up from a guy who was my neighbor who traveled because of his dad to the U.S., Washington. He brought all those information, like this kind of culture, he brought this vibe to my house. He was living next door and introduced me to it. And I, I, couldn't, I wasn't really aware of the whole thing, but I sort of felt that was special, that kind of counterculture or spirit of this rock music that's, that has a message or has an extreme direction they're following touch me very much. I mean, and you speak to counterculture and I see sort of 
plant-based and veganism as a as a form of, of counterculture Absolutely. in many respects. Absolutely. And I was thinking about it before the podcast. What got me, what made me aware of vegan culture? It wasn't vegan culture because of, for the sake of it, for, oh, you have to eat plants to get healthy. None of that was communicated. It was all about animal liberation. There was the animal liberation from Sea Shepherd, all that stuff. But it wasn't promoted to be healthier. It was more um, to prevent animals from being slaughtered. It was an ethic. Abused. Exactly. It's mainly based on ethical reason. That turnover came later to me, much later. So talk, talk me through, though, your diet. But at, at this time of your life, when you were into metal mm-hmm. and stuff, and you know Switzerland is known for its its cheese and mm-hmm. dairy yes. and, and meat and, and like dairy chocolate, and I've been to uh, what is it, Springley? Springley, yeah, that's that's world famous, right? Absolutely. They now do some vegan chocolate. They there, do. Actually. Um, but talk me through what your diet was like growing before, up. Uh, yeah, gro- before, I was never a meat person. I had my, my occasional cheeseburger at this big chain. And never, re- it was more of a, you're a product of your environment, right? So, uh, especially at this age, my environment was driven by American culture. We had access to this chain, the most, the famous chain who would um, offer you those kind of products, burgers and fries and everything. I would, of course, you know, have a bite, but you know, you're not conscious at this age and but I wouldn't um, crave for it. Never. I think I never ate fish in my life. And I'm glad. Wow. Yeah. But I ate my occasional burgers. But when I was about 16, I ended up in a, in a home with several different friends or soon to become friends, older people, skateboarders. One was a pro skateboarder. There was um, break dancers, artists psychology professor wow who was a heroin addict also <laughs> so there was a lot was of like drugs and bunch. culture it was huge it was it was like a, a cocktail a, a hybrid of so many different extremes this is in Bern. this was in Bern. yes how many people were living in this house? um nine nine people we had a mini ramp and i was skating i started early when i was 12 and I, when i was 16 i was enjoying it very much i was skating I was, I had to cook for myself the first time. I had to wash my clothes. I had no clue. It sounds weird, but I had no clue how to, you know, do those daily routines. And so I was thrown into cold water. How, what, what sort of saw you end up moving from home into that household? Well, my girlfriend, uh, my mother's back then boyfriend kicked me out. I don't, if I think about it, I don't even remember why, because there wasn't one situation where I would say I was a back, I wasn't a back kid at all. I was always the kind of guy who, like a cat who would always land on the feet and wouldn't do harm. But, you know, I would, I would every now and then like do something maybe bad, but not really. So maybe prank or something. maybe a little misunderstood. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Thank you. Uh, I was misunderstood. <laughs> That's why I got kicked out. Sounds weird. But anyway, I got kicked out. My mother probably wanted to stay with this guy and having a great relationship because the divorce of my dad wasn't too good on her. 
So she might, she thought, you know, I'm going to hang on to this, but she didn't mean it personally. Mm. I totally understand her situation. She just wanted to have a, you know, enough harmony. And she, she was right that I would be able to deal with my life. And so I did. But I ended up in this constellation of weirdos <laughs> who shaped my future in a certain way. None of them was vegan or vegetarian. They were doing barbecues all the yeah. time. They were taking coke. One guy tried two times to kill himself. Um, it was like like in the movies. That must have been a testing period. I yes. mean, for a sixteen year old kid, yes. you're still you're still very impressionable at that age. Mm-hmm. It was. I mean, if in retrospect, you you would look at it like, oh man, that was crazy. But back then, you you're caught in in this tornado and you life. just get spun around and spat out wherever the tornado wants you to be. That's so you, how I felt. You would have had to have grown up pretty quick. Mm, I had to, yeah. So, but you know that somehow triggered senses in me, awareness, reading in between the lines, also reading people a bit more because you have all those um, different facets of people, of the personage, the nuances. And it would sort of educate you. Every day I was awake and there I would have a social experiment. And that somehow shaped me and also made me aware of things that could have an impact and whatever. There was a, a cheese maker next to our house and a butcher, like in separate buildings. And I remember being there, living there at this house, and I saw the cows being transported to the butcher. And it sounds so super cheesy and cliche and everything. But honestly, that situation, looking through that, the, the slats, the slats, exactly. And seeing their eyes had a huge impact on me. So the whole situation made me reflect on what I'm doing. Is me the right thing? Do I need it? I was like, I anyway, don't really eat it. So I started to follow a vegetarian diet ever since. And at that stage, was there any sort of resource or no person you could go to? Or did you, how, how did you ensure that you were eating a healthy diet or were you just sort of just no idea. enough calories? I didn't. And honestly, I started doing, thinking about intake, nutrition as a fuel and everything probably four years ago with a clear mindset and, a, and an awareness of so what you so can what were the main sort of foods that you would I love mozzarella stage. yeah mozzarella buffalo mozzarella so this is um, when you were like 16 17 18 till I mean I'm on a plant-based diet for two years only yeah I've been vegan uh, vegetarian before so I would always eat I ate a lot of bread which isn't the case now but I ate a lot of bread pasta Parmigiano, tomato sauce, you know, the, the Napoli, you know, spaghetti Napoli, all that kind of stuff. I love Italian food, yeah, focaccias well, and all that. That's, that's your neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. It's close. Yeah, it's, it's a border country. Yeah, I've actually driven up through, through sort of like Lake Como into, is it mm-hmm. Lugano? Yes. Lugano? Chiasso, that's it, the border town. Yeah. And then Lugano, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what was the inspiration two years ago to go from the vegetarian diet that you'd been eating to a vegan or plant-based diet? 
I have to come back to the thing. We were talking about the ethical resources we had for our bands, like Vegan Reich. That was the first straight-edge hardcore band that promoted a vegan lifestyle. And that was mid-80s to late-80s. Then Earth Crisis brought it to another level. They're actually from North America, from the East Coast. And Carl Buchner, the singer... He was a fanatic. I, I bet he still is. I never met him, but, you know, reading the lyrics and having his, you know, determination in the music makes it clear that he is determined to have his vocal cords dedicated to saving the planet in some sort of way, like especially the animals, the ethical. But it was never about health. The health thing I discovered two years ago, I mean, I was watching this thing called What the Health. Yeah, yeah. I love Documentary, it. yeah. And I ate uh, a pizza with buffalo mozzarella. And I was training like always, but it's some sort of had a huge impact. I remember being with my friend, he's 55 and um, a very grounded person who lives all organic, but he would still, he, he's a vegetarian, he's not a vegan. And he also realized while watching the movie that this is the only way to go. But we needed that, those kind of things. I was always not a big fan of those preachers, you know, like Earth Crisis, the band who would say, um, don't kill animals and all that, which is great to do, but I would be like, Offended in it, not offended, but like put in a corner and someone telling me you have to do it. That wasn't the right way to approach me. I need to be triggered by facts visually. And that was the case then. I mean, it, it left a huge impact. That changed my life. That, that's when the whole chain started. You know, you go deeper, you experience a whole new way of life. I remember the first six, seven months of changing my diet, my body would just get rid of all the stuff that's been locked up somewhere. Building up, yeah. Yes. Getting pimples, looking like a 14-year-old, like a preteen kid. I went through that and I'm glad. So to everyone who mm. <laughs> who's afraid to turn vegan, don't worry, it just takes a while. It can take up to more than a year to yeah. really settle Got to flush things out. Yes, absolutely. And I always think you should really give it time and not waste too much thinking about it. Just do it. It's, it's, I don't want to sound like a preacher, but it's, it's really healthy and it's good for the planet. <laughs> I have to say it's, it makes sense. It, 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 no less inflammations. I experienced better skin, certainly. And how's your writing been? The writing's been very good. I've been, I mean, at some point I had like 6% body fat. And a lot of power. So power weight ratio was good. But then I ended up getting a sore throat when I went too deep. And I was like, hmm, what could that be? And it's that kind of cliche. People tell you, you take B12. This is the case. But um, to me, it was also lysine. You heard of lysine? Lysine. Yeah, yeah. lysine. And glutamine, L-glutamine. And all the amino acids, the chain amino acids, they, were, they are very important for me. But, you know, 
everyone's different, but there's some sort of foundation. And I mean, when you're you at 6% body fat, mm-hmm. were you eating a lot of food or was it, were you restricting food to sort of get to that weight? I'm, I'm really bad with That's pretty eating. light. Yeah. It's pretty light, but I'm really bad because I would, wouldn't eat for 16 hours and would have a fasted one hour spin in the morning when I get up, do stretching, do some, do about 100 push-ups and all the. So you're not a big eater. I am, but listen to that. So I would start, which is really stupid. Don't do this. Um, I would start the day getting up, drinking, I don't know, in ounces, but it's like two liters of water with lemon and 30 minutes after waking, a, a teaspoon of apple cider. So that would be my morning. And then I drink coffee and espresso or two. So I would start waking up, meditating on my sofa then starting to stretch, foot roll, um, go on the rollers. So you basically put your bike on an indoor trainer. It's pretty handy and it's really good for your pedal stroke. So and, I would do that for if, one hour. Good if it's snowing or cold outside. Absolutely. I love it. I became <laughs> some, uh, in the last seven years, I've been spending so much time on those rollers. I even have one here in New York and it's so handy. You get up, you, you do your morning routine, you go for a spin indoors and, you know, the weather doesn't really matter. And you sweat a lot because you have no wind circulation. So, so tell me, are, are those indoor um, spin sort of bikes set up like your bike without I, the brake? So you you have to think of it as, you know, it's like a device with rollers on it. Like oh, So you put your bike on put my on own bike it. on yeah, it. Gotcha. So yeah. I use my normal bike, which That's is right. super cool. And it looks, the one I have... Super nice. Is that is that the same sort of apparatus that people use when they sort of clock into a race and they're like Swift. racing people across the world? It's not the same. I, I do have one of those. Um, it's called a Wahoo Kicker, where you would lock up the the bike, the rear part of the bike, the derailleur, onto this machine, and it has basically the, a cassette with all the cocks in it already installed, and you will be connected through. Bluetooth by a Bluetooth onto your device, if it's a tablet or whatever, that's up to you. But you'd be able to reach your community and ride with them on a virtual, um, on virtual routes. Pretty cool. And race. It's really cool. I tried it a couple of times, but um, I prefer being on free rollers where you're not attached. So basically it learns you to have the most perfect pedal stroke. And you have to balance. You're not fixed. And I love that. Yeah. It gets so boring, to be honest, to be, I'm, I'm easily bored. I need to be doing loads of stuff. I can't focus on one thing. If there's this one thing is moving always, yeah. I'd be more focused. So after the, um, the water and the apple yeah. vinegar, what's next for you? The stretching. And then in terms the wake, of food. Waking up my body. Food, yeah. juice, celery, spinach beet i got rid of the ginger took it too much and it's not really good for my skin <laughs> i learned uh, a bit of turmeric um cocoa fat black pepper yeah it's a lot of work yeah carrot as well so i'm gonna have one of those because after training the body shouldn't be impacted with like hard to digest food. So you go the juice straight after yes. your training. 
And then an hour later, I would eat a lot of sweet potatoes, brown rice, zucchini and bell pepper. Red bell pepper is top. It's one of my favorites. So I'll mix it up. Uh, I use, I, I eat a lot of vegetables. I try to avoid chocolate, which is not the case. I try, but I eat chocolate every day. Dark chocolate. There's a brand called Who something I discovered. And it's, yeah, it's like crack cocaine, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's the worst and the best. It's a hate-love or love-hate relationship. Probably more love than hate with a tiny amount of hate because I eat a whole bar. I love it. So uh, I eat, I have a sugar tooth. I eat um, every day, something sweet. And I eat a lot in the evening, which is the most stupid thing. You know, there's like three things to stay lean. Three or let's say three main things. If you want to stay lean, you have to go to bed before 10. You shouldn't eat after 6 p.m. And you would need to drink a lot of water and avoid toxic people. Also, generate stress. So, and maybe choose fast every every. Yeah, well, I mean, there's three, a lot, three months. A but lot that's of a foundation. Yeah, if you if you're practicing those, and you're having your last meal at six p.m., you're mm-hmm. you're less likely to be having that chocolate bar and the dessert. Absolutely. And if you're drinking a lot of water, mm-hmm. a lot of the time we're actually thirsty. We're, a lot of the time when we think we're hungry, mm-hmm. we're actually thirsty. So if you stay hydrated, you are less likely to overeat as well. Mm-hmm. That's it. I did also a test where I had a, a sweetened uh, hibiscus tea and I was hungry. And there's like three, bar- there's like a barrier here on the upper torso towards the brain, I, w- I mean, visually. And the, the brain can feed off sugar, fat or lactic acid. It can be a food resource, right? So first of all, he wants always the sugar. So what I tried is I would drink a very sweet hibiscus tea, or you could also take chocolate and just put it in the mouth for a minute and don't, don't swallow it to see how your brain deals with it. And he actually, I mean, my brain or my, me as a person wouldn't eat more or anything afterwards. I was satisfied so that's with it, having it in a moment. It's a hack. To me, I don't know if it works with everyone else, but it works with me. Yeah. You could also use some plant-based energy drink with natural sweetened elements in it and maybe just have it in the mouth and not swallow it to see if it works for you. It works for me. I think that's the most important thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's, when when I always talk about plant-based nutrition and, and I give top level advice but at the end of the day you have to know your own body Mm -hmm. and you have to know what works for you absolutely are you better off having breakfast early in the morning or are you better off waiting until lunch that's something that you can Mm -hmm. you can feel it you know absolutely and it depends on you know not just your body but it's also your circumstances with training and Mm -hmm. work and traveling or everything yeah everything so Take me through being a vegetarian and now 100% plant-based diet in Switzerland, right? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it something that your family and friends, they understand? And is, are you finding that it's becoming sort of more and more mainstream mm-hmm. in Switzerland? Yes, I think it's in the Western civilization, it becomes more and more established to eat a plant-based diet. 
which is kind of weird if you think about it, but it is more common. People still look at you in a weird way um, as if you're an alien, but there's great places also in Switzerland, not as many as here in the East Village, obviously. And the vegan culture is well-rooted here. Um, it's been established for years. In Switzerland, it's not the case. But I see more and more chains, like grocery stores, having its own products um, devoted to a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle. So it becomes more accessible for the non-vegan or vegetarian people, which helps everyone, yeah. right? <laughs> Certainly helps me because at some point, you know, I... People would always discuss about food because everyone on this planet has a food problem, I guess. Or <laughs> like, you know, like deals with food and, and things becomes, about food. And it know? also becomes like religion, right? Yeah. In terms of how I people approach that. it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we should be able to have conversations without a lot of heat. Yes, exactly. I mean, certainly not with any judgmental thoughts or conversations. So to each his own, but I think um, generally a plant-based diet is very helpful for everyone, but it takes time. And in, in Switzerland, it's very conservative. Everything takes much more time. And you got a lot of influence from from Italy and, mm-hmm. and France, which... You know, France cult- is the worst. But culturally, these, yeah. these are not very vegan, you know, yeah. cuisines, right? It might, you go to the Normandy or Bretagne or even in the center of the Provence, you go to a traditional French restaurant in the countryside and ask, um, do you have anything vegan? He'd be like, uh, quoi? Vegan? C'est quoi? <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. He never heard of it. Yeah. You can uh, make it work in Italy. You can you yeah. just do sort of basic. They do vegan croissants on the, on the gas stations. Mm. So you can have your espresso and a vegan croissant. I'm not sure if it's really healthy. Not everything that's vegan is healthy anyway. That's so think. true. Um, I, I was thinking about it just recently because when I eat too many nuts, even then I would have a bad reaction. And I'm not, I don't have an allergy. I did all the tests. As in just energy or what sort of reaction? No, on the skin. Okay, interesting. So it would rise my arginine levels and would trigger like a, a cold sore, you call it, right? And I need to basically fight it with lysine to get an equilibrium state. So I would also need to, you know, prevent this culture or the skin disorder from happening through the lysine. And this is all learnings that I learned through like, okay, you shouldn't eat too many nuts, or if you do, you should take lysine. So I learned so many things about my body, about my intake, how fuel how food is actual fuel. And I think naturally as you sort of, if you move away from like a standard, let's say American diet to a plant-based diet, I think naturally people become a, a bit more conscious about nutrition in general mm-hmm. and how they people become more conscious of how they're feeling, right? Yeah. Because when yeah. you make such a big change, there's, there's so much learning that has to take place and people want to make sure they're not missing out on any nutrients and things yes. like that. And as a result, people become more in tune with how they feel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. But it may mean, like what you're saying, that you need to be Correct. able to troubleshoot. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. But it's all a learning thing. And that's 
in every case of life, it's the same situation, but especially if you make a change in your routine habits, it's a huge, it has a huge impact for sure. Let's go through your writing. Yes, let's go through that. What is it that you like about writing in general so much? My head spins all the time. I have so many ideas and they can be triggered through whatever painting or so I'm constantly somewhat distracted and the bike gave me the opportunity to calm down in a weird way. I mean, physically not, but uh, I wouldn't need to focus on so many things and I would reach a certain zone where I would just pedal and Sometimes I don't really realize that I'm pedaling and I love it. I love this kind of zone. Everyone who is a runner or cyclist or doing something, even a, a writer, mm-hmm. or I think every, even if you cut your vegetables, if you know how to cut it, if yeah. you don't have to think about, oh, I'm going to, I need to make sure I'm not cutting my fingers. It's that whole you idea end up in the zone. of a flow state. The flow state. Absolutely. And that's, to me, it all, it, most of the time it happens when I'm moving. So I have to be moving. I can't sit and end up in a flow state. It doesn't happen to me, maybe to someone else. So I think movement, moving the body amplifies my flow state or makes it happen. And the bike is it's some sort of a static monotone movement up and down the strokes and circles. And it's the repetitivity of it of this aspect somehow also creates this spiral it's like um the music you know steve reich the composer yeah yeah, or the, yeah. it's called new music yeah. or back in the day was established by music concrete so it's long songs very minimal instrumentation layers some sort of a loop that progresses that always and a new layer would be added but it always would, the foundation would remain the same. And it creates that sort of a trance like vibe, which can put you in a flow mode. And I listen to that kind of music also on the bike sometimes. If I know the route and I don't have to focus on where I'm going, and I have to be secure. So I love this. I can listen to new records on the bike while working out. I can take pictures of the environment. I can go pick up. Vegetables. I have this vegetable loop. I call it the vegetable loop. So I would go to different farmers with my, it's called a musette, a feedback, and I would fill it up. How far is the vegetable? It's um, 70 miles. That's yeah, a big vegetable run. It's a big, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I do that probably once a week. How, how, how many kilograms of, of food would you be bringing back? Maybe four. Oh, wow. Or more. Depends. So, potatoes are heavy. I like potatoes. From, from sweet potatoes? Or white more, potatoes. Yeah, both. both. Yeah. From, from, from what you're talking about here and, mm-hmm. and also from what I've seen in your videos, mm-hmm. it seems like these rides and, and I guess some particular rides that we mm-hmm. can go into are more like projects for you yes. rather than races. Yes. I don't like to compete. Maybe I was always scared to compete because I was afraid of losing. But nevertheless, I did some races and I won a couple long distance races, but 
the bottom line of this is I realized that if I really train and put all my energy into that, the willpower and everything, I wouldn't be that bad at racing. But I don't want to compete with other people. I just don't want to. There's other people who love it, so I'm glad they do it. I'd rather complete something than compete. You know what I mean? It's like I would go and expose a beautiful place. It's It has a selfish, egotistical component because I want to ride it. But then I also want to inspire people to go there and do something or discover their local roads and look at it from a different perspective. Because sometimes you don't need to get far to get your high, you know, whatever. There's mountains maybe everywhere. Here's a mountain called Bear Mountain. It's not that far. It's maybe 80 miles. So I love inspiring people. And because I got inspired, I still get inspired by other people. And I'm glad that people like you doing what what they or what you're doing, because it inspires people. And that's the most important thing. We cannot, people need to realize that we can't deal with life all alone. We need, we need each other. I don't want to sound like Mother oh, Teresa. We're connected. But and, we're, yes. and we're connected with the planet. Yeah. Everything has an impact. Everything. And so I want to contribute it you know, contribute visually at least. But I, on the other hand, I don't even think I started what I want to do. You know, I'm nowhere near where I want to be. This is all just the start. Do you have a, a clear vision of what that looks like or are you just embracing the, the unknown? It's a mix. You know, I told you before, I feel sometimes like a cat who would always land on its feet. That's how, how I feel. You know, I have this sort of confidence. I can be stressed at some, you know, when I have a reason for it, but I have this deep confidence and I'm not religious, but I'm a deep believer, I would say. And I have this confidence that would drag me through life. And I'll always give it a little push, you know, when I would decide, you know, something simple, I would go and ride the highest volcano on earth in uh, in Hawaii on Hawaii and the big island Mauna Kea it's huge it's like 12,000 feet or more no yeah more 12,000 feet it's huge and then I would need to prepare so I would know what I have to do that's an easy task and I have the confidence to by the time now I know what I have to do to you know conquer this mountain but there's other stuff, you know, which is the unknown. But I think when I get there somehow, I'll be able to pull it off. I hope so. I mean, there's no guarantee. But yeah, as I said, my faith would guide me. Yeah, that that underlying sense of confidence is so crucial, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's what allows someone to step outside of their t- comfort zone and, Absolutely. and have a go at something, mm-hmm. right? Without the confidence, it's very hard to step out of the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where the growth happens. That's the only way. That's the only way. I think there's those through there's the determination which changed the whole thing. And determination means stepping out of the comfort zone. You can't live only with talent and enthusiasm. You need the determination to, you know, to progress. Mm. But you, where, where do you think that inner confidence 
came from for you? Was that something that your parents helped instill in you as a, as a kid or where did, where did you develop that? I think it's about choosing your battles wisely and having, not forgetting what you know. That's really important. I mean, you shouldn't live in the past, but it's good to, to look back at the things you, you sort of know and you know that that can await you in the future. And if it's intrins- intrinsic, um, that's the best way. So you don't even need to think about it. You just, maybe that's a confidence, things that have been improved or developed over time and, that, and, that, and they end up being intrinsically integrated into your being that would affect your future in a very beneficial way. So, I mean, doing your first podcast was probably different than doing your podcast now, no matter what guest, you know? Absolutely. As a simple example, you know? Doing the work, right? Yeah, exactly. You have your routine, your patterns, all the fragments you put together, and then you can focus on the content now. But it maybe took a while, right? Yeah, yeah. You got the building blocks. Now you can focus on the opposite person. You mentioned before you would rather complete mm. than compete. Yeah. And one thing that you did complete was the 1910 mm-hmm. Tour de France first mountain stage. Yes. Talk me through that, What, where the idea first was born, why you wanted to do that, and what that actually entailed? Well, the 1910 Tour de France stage, that's a crazy thing. I read about it in an old book about the Tour de France, and they mentioned that it was gruesome and relentless because it was more than 300 kilometers in miles. It's like 185 or 190 miles. And 20, hold on, it's like 12... It's crazy how high it's, it's 7,800 meters of climbing. So in, wow. you, you can, it's 21,000 feet. With one gear. With one gear. And they did it. up and down. Yes, yes. <laughs> but back in the day in 1910, the organizer thought, okay, there's only going to be one guy arriving at the finish line. And there were actually more, but they were riding with single speed bikes. They only had one gear. They had, um. This is 1910. 1910. The last this time is, that it was ever done. Like from a, a race, a yes, point. yes. 1910, they did it for, I think, four or five years. I'm not sure now. Maybe I'm wrong, but they did it for a short period only because they felt like, okay, all the racers, they, they're so beaten to, <laughs> to like death almost, you know. Some would sleep near, you know, on the side of the road because they're so shattered. Anyway, they would also write on single speed bikes, steel bikes, heavy bikes, and have a sort of a handlebar bag made out of leather with food in it. And that's how they did it. You know, one gear with, you know, they were able to coast and they had brakes, but they had a very bad road conditions. There was gravel at the, towards the top. I mean, it was 1910, right? Yeah, yeah. 2019. So now it's all a road. It's all road. It's yeah. a good tarmac. But nevertheless, um, it was still hard, you know, thinking about it for me, looking at it. And it triggered the sort of pioneer instinct to do it on a track bike because a track bike, the bike I ride is meant to be used indoors. You know, it's, it's used in the velodrome and you got some good track races in, the, in Australia. 
And so track racing is, is well known in Australia. So those kind of bikes not be, aren't meant to be ridden on. So what made you want, want to do that? I want to get the max out of the men, you know, <laughs> that's kind of my Minimal way. riding. Yes. To, to create or do something monumental for me personally on such a simple bike. That's great. I like it. It's like the poor man's version of what Alex Honnold does, you know, like free solo and all that stuff and all the mountains without rope. It's like the poor man's version, you know, I was never a climber. I wasn't a big wave surfer, which I would have loved to be. So I was like, this is my kind of small approach to, to those kind of sports, which I would love, but I never really had the opportunity to, to do. So pure bike, simple, totally controlled by my feet, my, my legs and my instincts. And doing that battle, it was some sort of a battle before it happened. It was a big battle. When it happened, it wasn't. That's the interesting thing. Um, so when you the said road before, there was big, yeah. so before you started the race, yeah. there's a battle. So I'm, yeah. I'm assuming you're talking about a mental battle. Yes. You know, the mental battle is always the biggest battle. The mental aspect activates your body, your range of motion, your muscles. Everything gets activated by your mental state. Your brain activates it. So like your model is, muscle decides, oh, I have to write... 300k there's it only activate activates itself maybe with a because of a reflex maybe not even then so the mental aspect is the biggest one in every case you if you if you choose to do a thing like that you have a lot of ups and downs mentally you doubt yourself all the time you know you think oh i'm not able to do it but for some reason you decided to do it and you can't get out of it. I mean, I wasn't able to to pull the plug and say, oh, I'm not going to do it because it was financed by a big corporation, one of my sponsors. Yeah, I think that's worth laying down. You didn't just, this wasn't just you going no. out doing this. this but was that project. was the intention, Sam. That was the intention. I wanted to just do it and have it documented with a couple of my friends, you know, grassroots kind of amateur style or, you know, like the team would be. Um, Close in it. Yes, but the output should be quite professional. That's the best way. <laughs> I ended up having a huge entourage, a huge team, many people, and I'm not used to that. I don't like it. I don't like outside pressure. Mm, expectations. Yes. But I, you know, I put this pressure on my own shoulders. It's not that um, they put pressure on me. I created that. And it's most of the time is we amplify things. That contributed uh a lot to my battle you know the expectation i will project on other people what if what if all those characters and uh, what ifs and but as soon as i clicked in uh, i was just riding and i had a great time i had a great time we i mean i was probably one hour faster than the guys back then i mean i don't want to compare it but if someone would it, it wasn't a bad ride i didn't feel bad i had this encounter with the this old lady that I was, was mentioning. On yeah, that was yeah. on that one. And it was a great day. A great day. It took a toll on my body because the body is not meant to ride a bike like this up and down with one gear and you have to break with your legs, some sort of, and your psoas. 
your hip muscle is getting quite tense. So all up like 13, 14 hours or something? Um, I think it was 12 hours. 12 hours. Yes. Gosh. Mm-hmm. Couple did you, of did you drive it first to see it? No, no, I didn't. We looked at the first climb uh, a year ago because they wanted to shoot some stuff. And we looked at the first climb and they were like, okay, let's ride the whole route. I was like, no, I just want to, I don't even want to look at it. I'm just going to do it. I looked at it on paper and analyzed it. And I knew, okay, this section, that's going to be a long one. So prepare yourself. But other than that, I'm also not going to do it the second time. Um, I'd like to just dig in, do it, done. Completed. Yes, completed. Absolutely. Onto something new. Mm-hmm. Yes. What If you look back, though, on that and the entire journey, so the build-up, the training, the mental mm-hmm. the mental battles going into it, then the actual event itself, mm-hmm. what what do you think you took away most from it or learnt about yourself? I can be confident if I, if I put enough devotion into something I really want, I can, I can do it. Yeah. Very important. Trust yourself. You need to have a continuity and listen to your body. Don't listen to others, really. Even if you're at the acupuncture therapy and you have a pain that's not normal, talk about it. Don't swallow it. And that's what I learned. Just be aware of how you feel. In tune. Yeah, if you can go for a nap because you feel super tired, do, do it if you can. It's very important because the body gives you signals. Of course, we push it sometimes, but I try not to push it anymore. Um, or at least I think I know when I'm able to. Today, I wouldn't push it. I mean, it's the first time, to be honest, I take two weeks off riding my bike in my life. I mean, the last 14 years. And I had a huge battle. I was... It's like, oh man, I got so many projects. I'm going to gain weight. I'm going to be out of shape. And at, at some point I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to take time off because I need to give my body the chance to heal. I'm not stress. Now you're not an athlete. Now you're just a normal person. Okay? Do what the normal person does. Just enjoy life and don't put stress on you. The more stress you put on yourself the less progressive is your healing process because stressors affect the body. So I'm very chill. I'm not an athlete right now. I'm just, I, I put the car in the garage, cleaning up. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. So you spoke about setting your eyes and or, or setting a, a goal looking forward. What what do you have your eyes set on? I've, I think I heard from Vlad or, or someone about some outrageously fast speed mm-hmm. that you wanted to to achieve. Tell me about that. Well, the thing is, it's going to be a huge projects. I want to become one of the fastest cyclists. I can't talk too much about it. I didn't sign an NDA, but I've been told that I shouldn't. But it's going to be really fast and beautiful also. There's going to be a documentary about it. It's going to be like 30 minutes covering the whole route to this 
project to the end result, which you're about to hear about in probably like five months. I would love to talk about it, but I can't. So there's going to be this documentary. Um, we're starting to film in three weeks. The road to this challenge, because there's a special bike involved, a special clothing, helmet, everything. Sounds cool. It's going to be fast. Top secret. Yeah, more or less. And this is going to be a big project. Big well, project for me. I look forward to yeah. to seeing it and being able to share it with the plant mm-hmm. community when it's out. Yes, please. Yeah. Before we do close this one out, if anyone would like to follow your journey online or connect with you, where can they find you? I think the easiest way would be Instagram at Patrick Seabase or Vimeo. I upload my videos on Vimeo mainly myself or the people I work with. And you will be able to see him there. Okay. We'll put put both those in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the Thank show you, today and, Thank you. and sharing not just your journey, but the, the wisdom that you've mm-hmm. picked up along the way. Mm-hmm. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you very much, Simon. Howdy, friends. Simon here. I genuinely, genuinely really enjoyed that conversation. Lots of little bits of wisdom and, and many parts resonated with me. After our recording, Patrick and I had lunch and and he asked me a few things about my background and I explained that I went from physiotherapy to a stint in e-commerce before finding my way back to health via my master's in nutrition and, and plant proof. And we spoke about purpose. I said to him that when I was doing e-commerce, I was so busy, I was working flat chat, but I never really stopped to think about my purpose. To which he replied, Simon, sometimes we have to write a pop song to write our own hits. Now I'm not saying Plant Proof is a hit, but this really resonated with me. There's a lot of pressure to be living your purpose, but truth be told, I didn't even know who or what my authentic self was for a period of my life. Sometimes you just have to do what feels right and go through a process of self-discovery. It was a, a nice reminder to take some pressure off of ourselves. I'll leave you with that to ponder friends. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share your feedback on social media. Tag us in your post or story at Patrick Seabase and at plant underscore proof, which I'm sure you know, we would love to hear from you. Finally, whatever you are doing today, I hope it's great. I'll see you in the next episode.